So this morning, Psalm 81. This psalm is for assembled Israel. God himself addresses in this psalm my people three times. Israel or Jacob, same man, different titles, another, seven, another six times, seven if you count Joseph, and then you referring to the nation of Israel 15 times in addition. Most of this psalm is an address from God himself, a sermon from God to his people. But there's a, there's a tension in this psalm. Because as Paul tells us in Romans 9, not all who have descended from Israel are of Israel. And just because you assemble with the nation does not mean you truly are the people of God who submit to him. And so what we're going to see in this psalm this morning is there's a lot of parallels between the nation of Israel and the church at large. Because I I would say that the church is not very different. You have many people in many churches gathering under the name of Christ, calling themselves the people of God, but do not submit to Him. And so this morning, we're going to address some issues in the, what theologians call the visible church. Those gathered who we can see, but among the gathered, you're going to have a mix of believers and pretenders. And this is what God is, is dealing with. So the sermon this morning is not a us versus them, not a us within the church and them outside of the church, small c church. But this is a disparity within the church, a disparity between those who are gathered, some claiming the name of God but do not know God, who follow false idols, who praise him with with empty lips. And so the, the, the true people of God are the people who gather and who trust God. Then you've got people who claim the name of Christ and trust in things other than God. If I can be honest, this is one of my my biggest struggles when I talk to people. Because most people you talk to, especially in a small town like this, will consider themselves Christians. Will consider themselves having some kind of connection with, with God and think they have enough knowledge or enough Sunday school experience to put them right with God. And that's difficult because so many people claim the name of Christ, claim the name of the Bible, but actually trust in a God of their own making. And this is increasingly the case in modern churches. This is something that we must be aware of. So we must ask ourselves and examine ourselves, am I guilty of this? Am I guilty of claiming the name of Christ yet trusting in other things? Am I Guarding myself against this? Am I guarding myself against empty worship? Do I show up on Sunday morning and it's just lip service because the rest of my week does not reflect the words that I sing and the words that I hear? And then a real question can I spot the difference? Can I spot the difference between empty worship or a life that claims Christ and is not lived to Him versus one that is devoted to Him in word and in deed? And so in this psalm, God is going to call his people to rejoice, to remember, and to repent so that he can restore them. And we should listen because Israel acts as an example to us. So if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 81. Psalm 81, to the choir master, according to the Giddith of Asaph, sing aloud to God our strength, shout for joy to God of Jacob. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. 
blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. I hear a language I had not known. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the water of Meribah. Hear, O my people, will I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange gods among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign god. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward them and their fate would last forever. But he would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. Let's pray. Oh God, would these words prick our heart. Would we answer the call to listen to our God? Would we answer the call to praise you with our entire being? To lift up our voices, to lift up our hearts, to sing and shout your name? Lord, would we answer the call to remember what you have done? Redemption is yours. Deliverance is yours. Healing is yours. Salvation is yours. Eternal life is yours. Would we remember these things and what we have in Christ Jesus? And would we repent, Lord, daily? Turn from our sins and turn to you. Put to death false gods and idols and sin in our lives. And look to you for, red, for restoration, for healing, for satisfaction. Lord, I pray that we would be a people after your own heart. We would be a people obedient to you. People who hears you, who follows you, who's known by your name. And not just worshipers on Sunday mornings, but followers every day. Who look to your word, who sing your praises. Who remind each other of what we have and who we are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that your spirit would go before me this morning. Your spirit would bring to our remembrance that which Jesus taught us. All the scriptures that declared of him, that point to him. That he may be glorified in everything that is said, sung, and prayed here this morning. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So we begin in this first section. This call to rejoicing, the call to praise. Many psalms begin here. This psalm is different in its structure. So we're gonna, we'll get into the occasion of the psalm in verse 3. But I, I want to look at this, this progression in this first section. We've got three commands here. Sing, raise, and blow. So in the first one, sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to God of Jacob. The praises of the people are directed to God. And this is a call to the entire assembly. This is all of Israel. Everyone, lift up your voices without exception. 
But as we're going to see in this psalm, this is a call not just to sing, not just to show up to be a part of the party, because this was a big celebration in the life of Israel, but to listen to God, to obey Him, to turn from your sins and turn to Him. This is the call of people who are not just giving Him lip service in their worship, but they are truly joyful. They are truly joyful because they know that God has redeemed them, that He is their God. They are His people and they are united to Him. And that joyful song is to be led, verse 2, by the Levites. The Levites were the worship leaders. They were the keepers of the law. They were the teachers. They were the ones who, who led them in, in, in song and led them in music. So we see this here for the... So we've got all the people in verse 1, and then we've got the Levites in verse 2. Raise a song, sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. All the Levites would gather with, with instruments in hand, with loud, joyous worship. Bringing the people before God, leading them by example. And worship done well is done joyfully. With beautiful melodies and instruments that, that God has, gave, has given us so that He is glorified. So it goes from broad down to more narrow, down to very narrow in verse 3. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon, on our feast day. Now for us, we don't understand what that means. We, we have a lunar calendar, but we don't really follow it. We have our months that follow a, a more Roman calendar. But to them, they knew exactly what this meant. This is telling them precisely when this happened. So first, you've got the new moon. tells you what time of the year it is. It's the, the, the seventh month, the full moon, where it is in that month, and then the feast day. So this is speaking of the Feast of Booths, the biggest celebration of the year. And so the reminder in the Feast of Booths was that when God brought them out of Egypt, they dwelt in the wilderness, they dwelt in booths, they dwelt in, in small huts, but God provided for them there. So it was a reminder of what God brought them out of, what God is doing in them, and the promise that God had going forward for them. And so the call in this particular ceremony was the ram's horn. I love the ESV, but I hate that they put trumpet here. This is the shofar. This is the ram's horn that would be blown, and the, 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 the temple priests specifically among the Levites would blow these ram's horns, and all the people would come in for worship. And this was the call of rejoicing because their God is a God who delivers. Their God is a God who redeems. And in this time, there would be a rhythm of singing and reading of the Scriptures, singing and reading of the Scriptures. And that's why it goes from verse 3 to verse 4. 4 it was a statute for Israel, a rule for the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph. This time of celebration was not just song. It was a reading and reminding of the law. But before we get into verse 4, we have to deal with the reality here. Because if you read ahead this week, as you should, and I encourage you each week to read ahead, if you were paying attention as we were reading, Israel's in trouble here. Israel's not really being faithful. God is calling them to listen, and they're not listening. And I would argue that many churches today are in the same place. Many churches are going through the motions. Many people are going through the motions. They're not listening to God. They listen to the culture throughout the week, and then they show up in church on Sunday morning and play the role. And so I want us to think about this this morning. When we sing, is our worship pleasing to God? Is it done with a heart that, that, that loves Him? 
Are we coming before him with praise because our hearts are devoted to him, or is it just lip service? Can you not wait to get back to the world and everything else that has a hold on your heart? Is this the song of your heart every day, or just when everyone around you is doing it? Israel had to be reminded at least three times throughout the year to gather and worship. We do it weekly because we need it. We have to sing God's praises weekly because we are prone to forget. We have to be in God's word weekly because we are also prone to forget. But how many of us do this daily? We should be doing the same thing. We should be reminded of what God has done daily. We should sing his praises in our homes daily. Because that is how often we forget. That is how often we go to other gods. That is how often we trust in other things besides the God who has redeemed us. This is what's at stake here. Anytime something is repeated three times, it's a superlative. So the, the three things we hear in verse 4 and 5. Four. We know what four means. Whenever we see four, it's what's before. Four, the command to praise is a statute of Israel. It's a rule of the God of Jacob. He made a decree in Joseph. God commands this. My people shall praise me. I am worthy of praise. This is not optional. Commanded of God's people. And so what's at stake here, though, is that people who were praising him with vain lips. And we know because the prophets who spoke around this time dealt with this. Sacrifices that were not pleasing to God, worship that was not pleasing to God, like Amos. If you know where Amos is, it, um, in the Minor Prophets, a little toward the beginning of the Minor Prophets. So the reference will be on the screen, but the, the, the uh, passage will not be on the screen. So I want you to hear God's heart here, because this is God speaking to his people through the prophet Amos in chapter 5, verse 21. I want to read 21 through 24. Because many people in our culture would say that just being religious is enough. Yeah, I go through the motions. Yeah, I go to church. Yeah, I sing. Yeah, I do good deeds. Yeah, I help little old ladies across the street. Haven't I done enough good? I've heard this so many times it makes me sick. What does God say about that? It's, it's just enough if we feast and sacrifice and sing, right? Amos 5.21, I hate I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. If you are not looking to please God in your worship, it's just a noise in his ear and he wants to turn it off. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But what, God, what does God desire? But don't sing to me unless justice is rolling down like water and righteousness like an everlasting stream. Does your life reflect me as God, the just and holy God, a righteous and loving God? Are you hypocrites? Jesus, quoting the prophet Isaiah in Matthew 15, says something very similar. The Pharisees are always at odds with Jesus. But he tells them, so this is Matthew 15, verse 7. But earlier on, so he makes a distinction between what man is doing and the commandments of God. Verse 3, 
And why do you break the commandments of God for the sake of tradition? But now he gets to the heart of it in verse 7. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of man. Is that not the state of many churches and many so-called Christians these days? It's on their lips, but their man-made traditions. No concern for, does my life match up with the Word of God and what God commands for His people? So, now we have this, this statute, this rule, this decree. Worship me. Why should you worship me? There's, a, there's an interesting line here that we can tend to read over. He made it a decree. When was it a decree? In Joseph. Who's Joseph? Israel's representative within Egypt. When he went out over the land of Egypt. What happened when God went over the land of Egypt? This word in the Hebrew also means against. When God went over the land of Egypt, it was not a good thing for the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. Because unless you had the blood the spotless lamb over your, your doorpost. God going over you is not a good thing. But that was a time of praise for Israel. Because that was Israel's redemption. It was the blood of the lamb that redeemed them, that saved them from the wrath of God that went out over the Egyptians. That is their cause for praise. I redeemed you out of Egypt. And then this next line, very difficult to translate. And it really depends on if after Egypt is a period or a comma. I think it's a period. If it's a comma, it's referring to the Egyptian language. But I think it's a period. I hear a language I had not known. What is that referring to? Verse 6 begins this sermon by God. I hear a language that I had not l- known. Up until that point, God had only spoken with Moses. But God will speak to them from the mountain. God hears their plight and speaks to them for the first time, and they cower, and they are afraid. They are terrified because Mount Sinai is thundering and it is cloud and there's lightning and they don't even want to come near it because they know that they will die. God speaks to them in a language that they did not know because he hears them. And so now we're going to begin this first person address by God in verse 6 where he hears, he reminds, he admonishes, and he exhorts. This is the pattern of a good sermon. He knows where his people are at. He points them to his word, what God has done. And he warns them of what they are doing and keeping them from him. But he also encourages them that he's the God who provides and restores. And so that's what we're going to work through in the rest of this psalm. So in verse 3, or excuse me, not not verse 3, in verse 6, I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Your hands were freed from the basket. This is God's response when his people cried out to him. Exodus 3. It'll be on the screen. I want to go through this quickly. Exodus 3, when Moses is standing before the burning bush, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. God hears the cries of his people, and he does a couple things here. For I have 
Look at verse 6 and 7. Everything is past tense. Everything is something that God has accomplished for the sake of his people. I relieved your shoulder from the burden, and your hands were freed from the basket. So relieving the, the shoulders and the hands, this is, this is vivid reminders that even though this generation were not slaves in Egypt, your forefathers definitely were. They carried heavy burdens. God removes burdens. So we see this literally, but we're going to get to it figuratively in a moment. God is a God of compassion. He is concerned for his, for his people who are oppressed. And he is abounding in steadfast love to them that he takes what weighs them down and takes it off of them. But this reference here we may not recognize, and your hands were freed from the basket. So what we don't know, but it's helpful for us to understand, is that when, pharaohs, when the pharaohs built their, their temples, they would uh, have slave labor, and they would bring many slaves together, and there were many ways to build these temples, but what they would do is they, they would craft these baskets and fill them with bricks. So with the bricks that they would make when they didn't have enough straw, they would have to fill their baskets with these, these bricks and haul them across the land and haul them up these, these temples. So you've got this picture of, of Israelite who are making bricks. They've got weights on their, on their shoulders. They've got these baskets that are in their hands or slung across their, their, their foreheads as they're, they're moving this weight around. This is the picture of where Israel was, and this is what God brought them out of. And I think this is really important for us because Israel acts as our example in this. They are not the only ones with burdens. They're not the only ones with, with baskets. And we know that when Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew 11, calling out, come to me all who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. This is the same call of God to his people today. I am the one who relieves burdens. I am the one who takes the baskets out of your hands. One of the most beautiful examples in this, of this is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I mean, this is the tension within the, the, the whole story. Christian, the main character, he's got a burden on his back. And he can't get it off. And he goes on this journey, and everywhere he goes, he has to walk through mud and, and uh, climb and do all these things. And along the way, many people promise to relieve his burden. But it isn't until he reaches one spot. Anyone know where he reaches? The cross. When he reaches the cross, the burden falls off. There's nothing he could do, but before the cross, it falls off. And his burden, as we read throughout the account, is his sin. What happens after this burden falls off? He's given new clothes. He leaves singing and rejoicing. Rejoicing is a response to the deliverance of God for his people. God reminds Israel that I'm the God who relieves physical burdens. But at the cross, we learn what is even more important. He relieves spiritual burdens. Because none of us are walking around with heavy backpacks literally on our backs. But every one of us carries burdens with us. And we are plagued to focus on the physical. To focus on what is right here. But we miss the spiritual. And we forget that through Christ, He has taken on our burdens. And he frees us from our basket of bricks. But how long is it till we start filling it up again? Here, take these. Now let me take them back. Here, God, this is yours. Now nah, I'd rather hold on to this one again. The God who relieves burdens, the God who takes the, the, the bricks out of the basket, 
wants to relieve us of these things and have us free in him, but how often do we reach to get them back? How often will we rather carry our own burdens than submit them at the cross? This is Israel's problem here. This is our problem as well. So I want you to see this, this progression of what God has done. In distress, verse 7, you called out and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place. I tested you in the waters of Meribah. So God call, or God's people call. He listens. Three things. You called to me and what did I do? I delivered you. What is the deliverance? Brought them out of Egypt. Their national identity is that they are a redeemed people. That is our identity. In Christ Jesus, we are redeemed people. They were redeemed from Israel. We were redeemed from our sin. He also says, I answered you in the place of thunder. What is the place of thunder? The secret place of thunder. Mount Sinai. You come before me, I answered you out of the thunder. God who spoke to them out of thunder so that they would know who he is. Our God speaks to us from his word so that we would know who who he is. A God who redeems, a God who speaks. I tested you at Meribah. If you're not familiar with Meribah, Exodus, um, Exodus 17. People were complaining the word Meribah means quarreling. They're arguing with Moses. What has God done? We're dying of thirst out here. God brings them water out of a rock. But he says he tests them because there they were testing God. They were questioning God. The call to Israel is the same call to us. Don't harden your hearts as in Meribah. Don't think that the God who redeemed you before can't do it again, can't provide for you. This is the reminder. God redeemed you. God spoke to you. You don't think he can give you something to drink? For Israel, they receive water out of a rock in the desert. We receive living water out of the rock of ages. So the remembrance... Okay, just in case you forgot who I am and what I've done, that's the God I am. Verse 8 now begins this next section. This call to repentance. Listen to me. Trust me. Turn. That is repentance. Listen to your God. Trust in your God. Turn from other gods. Hear, O my people, while I admonish you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If you've been in our Deuteronomy study, this is a recap of the book of Deuteronomy. It's exactly what is is going on. God's reminder, God's call to them. This is who I am. This is what I've done. Turn from false gods again and again and again. This is the heart of the matter. This is actually the literary heart of the psalm too. It's in the very middle. I want to read a portion from Deuteronomy in chapter 4. If you have your Bibles, you can open to Deuteronomy chapter 4. Fifth book in the Bible, if you don't know where it is. Keep your finger there. We're going to go there one more time at the end. But I think there's a good summary within chapter 4 of the book of Deuteronomy and a great parallel to this psalm. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, starting in verse 32. For ask now of the days that are past which were before you since the day that God created man on earth. Listen to how God describes his relating to his people. And ask from one end of the earth to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. 
Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other beside him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose your offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is to this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I have commanded you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for all time. In love, I loved you. You weren't great. You weren't anything special, because, but I set my love on you. In love, he delivers them. In love, he warns them that no false God can relieve any burden. There's a parallel in our redemption, because in love, he sent his son to lost sheep who, like sheep, trust in the thing that is most close at hand, the nearest tuft of grass, the, the, the closest thing of comfort, instead of trusting in the living God. We see this breakdown here. I admonish you, I warn you, oh Israel, if you would but listen to me, I'm that God. No God has ever done anything like that. No God has any power. There shall be no strange gods among you. I am the Lord your God. But how easy was it for Israel to forget? But how often do Christians forget? How often do people say that they trust in Christ and so quickly begin living to other gods? We don't live to other gods. We don't make statues. You know, we don't bow down to altars. Let me talk about some of these other gods who promise things that they cannot deliver on. The gods of our flesh, some are more obvious than others. The God of wealth says, if you have more, you will, you will be more secure in it. I will provide happiness for you. The God of fame, if people just love you and adore you, you will feel better about yourself. The God of status, if I just get this job, if I just get this promotion, if I just get recognized by these people, then I've made it. The God of self-indulgence, just doing more for me will make me happy. The God of security, if I just lay up enough for myself, if I just insulate and isolate myself enough that no one will ever hurt me and nothing will ever disappoint me, then I'll be fine. These are false gods. The God, the God of pleasure. Our culture loves the God of pleasure. Just give me more of what my flesh craves. And that always satisfies, right? The God of comfort. Just remove everything that is difficult from my life. When things get hard, let me run. 
so that I can find and huddle in my corner of comfort. These are heart issues. These are idols. These are false gods that say, worship me, give yourself to me, and I will give you what you want. These are the gods of our culture. But the problem is, and this is, I don't mean to belittle this, there are very real burdens. There are very real hurts. And if you've been carrying around a burden and a hurt in your own strength for a long time, you will go to anyone who gives you relief. And in Pilgrim's Progress, Christian does this several times. There's lots of false promises out there that say, oh, I can get rid of that for you or I can help you with that. But no false God can take that burden from you. I'm trying to think of an analogy. It's the equivalent of a payday loan. You know what a payday loan is? If you work at Amscot, I'm sorry. No, I'm not. Um, this, is, this is predatory uh, lending in a way that's, that is it's just so manipulative of people. So the idea is, well, come to me because you don't have, it. You're, you're living day to day, week to week. I will take your, your check at a very high interest rate. I'm going to relieve your immediate burden. I'm going to give you back less than when you came in with, just enough. I'm going to take this burden on your back. I'm going to lift it up a little bit. I'm not going to remove it. I'm just going to lift it up a little bit so it feels like there's some relief. I'm going to charge you high interest, and you're going to be back again next week. Because I can't remove that, that burden. I just give you a little bit of taste of immediate gratification. This is what other gods do. They, they, they promise a little bit of relief, and it feels good for a moment. But they can't ever remove the burden. Beware of the quick fix. Beware of the promise of immediate relief. Beware of the easy route that says we can make all things better if you just do X, Y, and Z. This is unlike Christ. This will also be on the screen. Isaiah 53, we should know the Son of Man. But this part, especially when you think about burdens, when you think about what God delivered Israel from, what God promises deliverance for His people in, Isaiah 53, the heart of this Beautiful passage about the Son of Man, the suffering servant. Surely He has borne our griefs, verse 4, and carried our sorrows. Why keep carrying burdens? Why trust in anyone else? Jesus surely carried them. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Our burden on Him, chastised, punished. For our peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know the gospel? Do you know that in Christ Jesus our iniquities through faith are laid on him, every one of them? But how often do we want to carry them in our own strength? How often do we want to keep walking with this burden on our back when we could submit it to God? When we can put it at the foot of the cross, and, his, and our weight is, is, is on him, but we still want to hold on to our autonomy. We want to be God ourselves. This is why we praise. This is why Israel prays because their burdens were relieved. We have so much more to be thankful for. Because every sin, every burden in him was relieved. It was put on him for our peace, for our restoration. Stop carrying burdens. Stop listening to false gods who are offering quick fixes. How does he relieve these burdens? 
What is the, the conduit for this? We've got God's love. But if, like Israel, we cry out to him, we call out to God in faith, we call out to God in desperation, that's what the end of verse 10 means. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I'm the God of Israel. I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. Open your mouth and I will fill it. Praise me. Ask me and see what I will do. Stop carrying the burdens on your own. Stop trusting in other gods. Come to me. This is not a genie for selfish gain, but a loving God of saving grace. He's telling them, I've done great things. Look at everything I've done. You don't think I can do more. You don't think I can provide for you. You have not because you ask not. If you open your mouth, I will fill your mouth, and I will fill your bellies like I did in the wilderness. The same with us. When we call out to God, he will fill our mouth. He will fill our bellies. But most importantly, he will fill our hearts. So often, we want to take everything on ourselves. We don't cry out to him. We go to God as our last resort. After I've moved all the pieces and done everything I thought I needed to do to get my life in order, and it still's messed up, now I'll go to God. Oh, how we are like Israel, verse 11. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. They didn't listen. They didn't submit. And everyone who didn't submit, look what they get here. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Sounds like Romans 1, right? The wrath of God is poured out on all unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. They know God, but they didn't worship God. And God gave them over to their own sinful passions. If you do not listen, he will give you exactly what you ask for. If you want anything but God, he'll give it to you, and it's going to make you miserable. In my sin, the Lord gave me everything I thought I wanted, and it made me more miserable. But so many people are saved by the Spirit, yet want to continue in the flesh. My people did not listen. Israel would not submit. Do you listen to the voice of God? We live in a culture that is on repeat. The voices of the culture from everywhere we turn, do this and it'll make you happy. Go over here and it it will fulfill you. Do the voices of the culture drown out the voice of God? What voices are you listening to? It makes me sad when I see so many people in so many churches who are submitting to the rule of the flesh and the world. They do not submit to God. God said, okay, you submit to those things I will turn you over to what you desire, to your own counsel. Okay, you want to be wise in your own eyes? You want to think you got it all figured out and carry all of, all of your burdens on your own? Have at it. It's yours. But I love that God is compassionate. And God does not give up on his, on his people. They have rejected him. They do not listen to him. But look at verse 13. Oh, that my people would listen to me. This is a compassionate tone of a faithful God calling out to an unfaithful people, promising restoration. Listen to me. What does it mean to listen? He tells us. Not just hear, but do. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. To truly listen is to walk. To hear is to obey, is to apply it. And what happens if you obey? Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. What will I do? I will soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward them, and their fate would last forever. 
But He, being God Himself, will feed you, being Israel, with the finest of wheat and with the honey from the rock that I would satisfy you. Listening to God, trusting in Him, obeying Him. First thing we see here, victory over enemies. Israel was constantly at war. Israel was constantly tormented. They have physical enemies. But in Christ, we are promised victory over our enemies. We know the final battle is is won. Listen to me. Walk in my statutes because the battle is won. 15. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward him. Their fate would last forever. We don't have to be judge and jury. We don't have to take vengeance into our own, own hands because vengeance is the Lord's. And in Christ, he is the judge. He will pour out his wrath on the wicked, and their punishment will go on forever. Don't worry about them. Listen to me. Walk in my statutes. And then the next thing, but. This is what happens to them. This is what happens to the wicked. And this beautiful conclusion here, but he would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock I would satisfy you. But. Turn from those false gods. Turn from your stubborn heart. Repent and praise me. Because your God is rich. I give abundantly. This idea of repentance, we've got to get out of our mind that repentance is only for the wicked. Repentance is for believers too. We need to turn from our false gods. We need to turn from the things that our hearts desire more than God. We need to repent Listen to the voice of God, trust in Him, and turn from what we are giving our hearts to. This is what God is getting at here. Praise me because of who I am. Remember me because of what I've done. Turn to me because I am the only true God and I will restore you. And we get this beautiful restoration in verse 16. The God of abundant blessing. But I would feed you with the finest of wheat. Finest. This in the Hebrew, fatness. This is the good bread. This is the bread fresh out of the oven, covered, slathered in butter. The, the, the fatness. I will feed you with that. Good thing we're eating after this. I'm going to whet your appetite a little bit. That is the way God provides for his people. I will destroy the wicked, but for you, you get the good stuff. Turn to me. Trust in me. Praise me. And not just water from a rock. It's amazing that God could bring water out of a rock. I will bring you honey out of a rock. With honey from the rock, I will satisfy you. Look at these two words. I will feed you and I will satisfy you. Do you know what it is to be satisfied in the Lord? Do you know what it is that in the dry wilderness, you go to the Lord and he gives you water, living water. And not just water from a rock, honey from a rock. Where it's sweet on your lips. When nothing else will satisfy, nothing else will do. Where you are starved spiritually, he feeds you, he satisfies you. I want to close with one, parallel, one more parallel in Deuteronomy. And then I want us to respond and praise together. Deuteronomy 32. The song of Moses is a, is a parallel to this. The song of Moses, the call to Israel. But also, as we read this, this is how God uh, gathers and provides for Israel. But think about this as a parallel of how God gathers and provides for us. Psalm 32, we read a portion of it earlier. But I want us to continue, Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 10, where he retells this this story, but also you see the same language here that we just read in verse 16, in verses 13 and 14 of Deuteronomy 32. Look how God cares for and brings in his people. He found him in a desert land, him referring to Israel, personifying the nation, Jacob. In the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled them, he cared for him. 
He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wing, catching them and bearing them on his pinions. This is how God cares for his people. This is how God cares for us. And the Lord alone guided him. No foreign god was with them. He made him ride on the high places of the land, and he ate of the produce of the field, and he suckled him with the honey out of a rock and the oil out of a flinty rock, curds from the herd and milk from the flock, with the fat of lambs, rams of Bashan and goats, with the very finest of wheats, and you drank foaming wine made from the blood of grapes. Our God is a God of abundance. Our God is a God who cares for his people, who redeems them, who, cares, who, who nurtures them and provides for them. So think about what we've gone through this morning. Rejoice in our God because he sent his son to deliver us from Egypt. Remember what he's done. He brought you out of your sin and brought you into new, new life. Praise him. If you're saved by him, don't keep looking for salvation in other things. Repent and turn to him. He will restore you. He will feed you. Listen to Christ. Listen to his word. Turn from false gods. This psalm begins with praise. It is a call to repentance and it should end with praise. We praise the one who hears. We praise the one who delivers. We praise the one who answers. We praise the one who tests. We praise the one who removes burdens and then we praise the one who gives the finest blessings. We should lift our voices in praise to him. Sing together.